Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. I want to pray for, for healing for individual men and women. I want to pray for healing for our churches. I want to pray for healing for whole communities. I want to pray for healing for our nation. Pray, God, that as we uh, start to have conversations, that you'd be present speaking to us, helping us to know that at some point, God, we actually have to do something. I pray that you'll help us to be people as a church who've decided to act and to do something. Please give us wisdom, God, to know what to do. God, now as we engage with your word, I want to pray that you'll help us to be able to to learn from you. I pray that if in any way anything I say is wrong, that you'll protect us and guard us from what might be not true. But God, everything that is true, I pray that you'll take that and you'll invade our hearts and our minds and our souls and you'll transform us into the people you want us to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how many of you have ever been on an elevator? Anybody not been on an elevator? So when you get in an elevator uh, and you look at the name of the manufacturer in that elevator, what's the name inside almost every elevator? Otis. Otis Elevators. Turns out there's a guy named Mr. Elisha Otis. He's dead now. He is not the inventor of elevators, but Elijah Otis is the guy who's actually responsible for making elevators practical and workable. Uh, More than 150 years ago now, Elijah Otis invented what was the world's first reliable braking system on elevators, which actually made elevators a whole lot safer than they'd had been before Elijah Elevators actually existed, but they tended to be pretty much just platforms connected to a couple cables. And those elevators, because of some various practical physics reasons, elevators could only ever go to the sixth floor of a building. So there were no buildings really taller than six floors with working elevators. And the statistics on the safety of those elevators were pretty dismal. They weren't a great selling point. Lots and lots of people were being injured and sometimes even killed by elevators that failed. So along came Elijah Otis. And over 150 years ago, this guy invented the world's first reliable braking system for elevators. The problem was most people didn't trust him. They didn't believe that he'd invented something that was worthwhile. So there were really no takers for his elevator system. So here's what he did. At the World's Fair in New York in the year 1953, Elijah Otis realized he had a chance to reach a whole lot of people. So he reserved some space and he actually built an elevator at the World's Fair in New York in 1953. And this elevator, this is a drawing of what he did. His elevator was, uh, it was held up by a single rope like they all tended to be by a cable. And he would stand on this platform and he had a man holding an axe standing by the rope that held the elevator up. And he announced that he was about to cut the rope. And then he would ask anybody, he said, do any of you have faith enough to stand on this elevator with me? How many of you think there was anybody that took him up on that? There was not a single person. 
So Elijah Otis would stand on the elevator himself. He would say to the man with the axe, cut it. And he did. And the elevator would instantly drop just an inch or two. And his brake system would immediately kick in. And the elevator would stop. And Elijah Otis would yell to everyone in the audience, all is safe, gentlemen, all is safe. And on that first day, the first day alone, he sold three elevators. And over 150 years later, there are now over 70,000 Otis elevators in New York City alone. Now, it's not really his elevators that I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is his faith. His faith in his elevator brake system. Because his faith caused him to say, my belief in this system will determine how I act. My belief in this system will determine how I act. And I want to offer that to all of us as a definition of our Christian faith. Our faith is the beliefs that we hold that determine how we live. Our faith is the beliefs that we hold that determine how we live. And the reason that this is so important for all of us is that most of us have divided that sentence in half. Most of us have divided it in half. Most of us will say our faith is the beliefs that we hold. That's how we define our faith. Our faith is the beliefs that we hold. The second half, what, we deter- what determines how we live, it could be all kinds of things. It can be the economy. It can be maybe the neighborhood I live in. Maybe it can be some of the things that my, my church teaches me. It might be my family. It might be the news. It might be things that I'm afraid of. It might be what my boyfriend or my girlfriend tells me I should believe. Maybe it's my particular appetites. But it's all kinds of other things that determine how we live, not our faith. But from God's perspective, that sentence cannot be divided in half. Faith is not confined to just what we believe. Our faith is the beliefs that we have that determine how we live. Now in the Bible, there's a book called James. It's written by, it's a letter that James wrote to the church. Now, interestingly, James is the brother of Jesus Christ. And James wrote a letter to the church to help that first generation of Christians wrestle with this exact problem, this issue of our faith, and how does it determine how we should live? How does it impact how we should live? I'm going to read just a small section of this letter, starting in chapter 2. We're going to pick up at verse 14 and read to 26. And if you're, uh, if you are you know, at home, um, reading the Bible, or if you're here, if you're a note taker, you might just want to keep this open when we're done so you can uh, pay attention to some things in particular. James chapter 2, I'm going to start reading at verse 14. So James wrote this, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, well, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? 
So you you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, well, some people have faith and some people have deeds. But how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Now, you say you have faith, for you believe that there's only one God. Well, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is dead and useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right by God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. So just as the body is dead without breath, so also is faith dead without good works. Okay, now, you know how sometimes in life we want to talk about a single thing, but in order to talk about it, we actually have to divide it up into various pieces just so we can talk about it. Even though we know it's one thing, sometimes we have to kind of divide it up in pieces so that we can actually have a conversation about it. For example, sometimes we will talk about a single human being, about one person, but we will divide that person up and we'll talk about his body or her mind, even though we're talking about one person. Now, we know that you can't really divide a body up into those two things, a body and a mind. You can't divide it up. But sometimes it's necessary to talk about one thing by talking about it in pieces. So, for example, you might be talking to a person at work who appears to be overworked and who's stressed out and who's getting sick all all the time, and you might say to that person, are you taking care of your body? Or we know a couple years ago, actually, I think it's still going on, there's been a great advertising campaign around, and the advertising campaign says a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And both of those ideas are true. Are you taking care of your body? A mind is a terrible thing to waste. We know that both of those are right. We can talk about them separately. But we also know that you really cannot divide the two. You cannot take a scalpel and a bone saw and put a body over here and put a brain over here. You can't say, well, let's take your body apart from your brain and you take care of your body and let's put your brain over here and put it in school so you don't waste it. If we actually did that, if we actually divided a body from a brain, what would we have? I mean, besides a Dallas Cowboys fan. What... um, um, All right, so Jimmy and Carrie and Pam, I apologize, but you're not here. So um, if we did, if we separated a body from a mind, what we would have is a dead 
person, a dead body. Which is exactly why James said, faith without works or deeds or actions, whatever your Bible says, faith without deeds is dead. That's his point. So in the same way, we sometimes have to talk about a person by talking about his parts, a body or a mind. Sometimes we have to talk about faith by talking about its parts, but that does not mean that they're separate things. We might sometimes talk about what we believe, or we might sometimes talk about what we do. But the really important lesson that James is trying to get us to understand is that these are one and the same thing. It is not deeds added to faith. It is not what we believe. Now let's try to make everybody do a certain thing, because if you divide them up, you kill the patient. And it's dead. Faith without works is nothing but dead. And here is the problem that many, many of us have with this idea. We forget the two are connected because we know, especially of us in the church background, we've talked about this. We know, we know that that when it comes to actually our relationship with God, we know that you cannot Earn your way into the kingdom of God by doing good deeds. We know that. I mean, that's basic Christianity 101. God does not operate on a merit badge system. God operates on a system of grace. It's a free gift. It's his free gift to anyone. And then it's our faith that accepts that grace, right? That's what we know, Christianity 101. So we struggle with this whole issue of, well, the works part of it. We don't quite know how to wrap our brains around it. Now, the thing is, not everybody knows that. There are lots and lots of people, sometimes even people in the church setting, who think that God does operate on kind of a, some kind of a behavioral point system. Sometimes people think, well, our objective is to do enough good so that it outweighs the bad, and if you do that, you are in. Over the years as a pastor, I've actually had conversations with people, you know, who are outside the church, and sometimes they'll discover in conversations that I'm a pastor, and I will say something like, yeah, I'm a pastor at a church, and you should come visit us sometimes. And often a person will say, you know, after they start laughing a little bit, they'll, they'll laugh and they'll say, oh yeah, well, if I come to your church, the roof would cave in. Have you ever heard that? If I come to your church, the roof would cave in because they're operating under that kind of that behavioral point system that I haven't behaved well enough to be part of the church. Well, here's the deal. For those of you who have not been around Horizon for long, you might not know that we bought this building in 2013 and a year later, in July of 2014, our roof did cave in. It collapsed in a great crash of dust and drywall and plaster It's true, it caved in, but here's the deal, the building was empty. There were no pagans inside that we could blame for the collapse of the roof. It just doesn't work that way. God does not operate on an earn-it system. And most of us know that about faith, so we struggle with the whole works thing. So what we may not know what we may not understand is the first half of that is simply not enough. That my faith is about what I believe. That's not enough. That's not an adequate definition. Our faith 
is the beliefs we have that determine how we live. It's one and the same, and it can't be separated. But we struggle with that. So imagine yourself, imagine yourself standing in front of the pearly gates. And to be honest with you, I even hate to ask you to picture this because that image is just so far wrong, it's pathetic. But imagine yourself standing in front of the pearly gates and imagine you're standing next to somebody that you knew during your time on earth. And you knew that this person does not believe anything that you believe about Christianity. You know that this person does not believe the right things about God. Maybe this person, maybe she was an atheist during her life or a Muslim, or a Buddhist, or somebody who prefers beaches to mountains, whatever. Somebody who does not believe the right things about God. And you suddenly find yourself both having to explain to God why, they sh why you should be allowed in the kingdom of heaven. And you respond to that question by saying, well, I believed all of the right things. I believed in God. I believed in Jesus, that he was the son of God. I believed in the virgin birth. I believed he even walked on water. I believed Jesus died for my sins. I believed in the resurrections. I believed all of the right things. And the other person starts saying, well, I may not have believed those things, but look, I lived a good life. I never cheated on anyone in my business. I was a good neighbor. I coached an inner city baseball team. I donated a ton of money to charity. I volunteered at a homeless shelter, etc. Now, here's the thing. Sadly, this is the truth. A lot of us think, well, my beliefs actually make me superior. We think that. We think, well, I believe the right thing. We think our beliefs make us superior. And... They do not. They do not. Which is exactly why Jesus said things like in Matthew 7, look, he said, not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but only those who do the will of the Father. That's why, for example, in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus was telling a very famous story about judgment, he talked about dividing the sheep from the goats. And in order to divide the sheep from the goats, he started talking about things like, you know, who fed the hungry or who took care of the sick or who showed hospitality or who showed compassion to prisoners. And he seems to be saying that what you do is the criteria so when the Bible talks about what God is offering to us and how to access what he's offering us, sometimes in the church we call this being saved. We think of it as being saved. But whenever the Bible talks about this, what God is offering us, it never says this is all about what you believe about Jesus. It almost always says it's about believing in Jesus, which is an entirely different thing than believing something about him. For example, there's a great story in John, uh, John who, who ended up being probably one of the best friends of Jesus. John wrote a gospel, and in his gospel, 
in the opening chapters in John chapter 2. This happens right after that wonderful story about Jesus going to a wedding at Cana where they ran out of wine and Jesus changes the water into wine. And immediately after that miracle, there's this sentence about his disciples who saw that happen. And that sentence says, and his disciples began to believe in him. It wasn't that they believed things about him, like, for example, wow, he's really capable of doing some cool things with water. It was that they believed in him, and they came to understand that the power of God was in this human being, and the presence of God is in this human being. And maybe, maybe I can trust him with my life. Maybe, maybe I can trust him with my life now and forever. And they believed in him in the same way Elijah Otis believed in an elevator and stepped into it and said, cut the rope. They looked at Jesus and they said, I'll follow you. I think you can handle my life. I'll follow you. And these guys, starting 2,000 years ago, began to understand that they were actually trusting Jesus with their lives. And they were slowly started to think, you know, I think I can put my life in his hands. I want the kind of life he's talking about. I want the kind of life that this man is living. So I will follow him. Because that's what Jesus is offering, not just a system about believe these 27 important things, but he is offering us life, eternal, everlasting life, life in the kingdom of God, starting right this minute, right now, right here in this earth, and then it stretches on into forever. And that's the way Jesus talked about it. He kept saying over and over, follow me, follow me. Because through me, he said, through my life and through my death and through my resurrection, the presence of God and the power of God and the love of the magnificent Father in heaven, the favor of God, all of that through me, it is available to you right now, now and forever. So if you want the kind of life that God is offering, if you want to be free from the chains that are binding you, if you want to be free from the fear that just cripples you, if you want to be free from the burdens you are burying, burying just, just trust me, he said, follow me. Give me your life. Believe in me. And if you do, the free gift of God's Life in his eternal kingdom is yours now and forever. So what Jesus is offering is life, nothing less than life. He is not offering us a list of things to believe about him. He is offering us life, which is why James is so passionate about pleading with us that we understand what faith in him is all about. It is not about the beliefs that we hold. It is about the beliefs that we hold that determine how we do life. Now, because James, like Jesus, is a storyteller, James is going to offer several stories, four of them actually, that kind of prove his point. There are two negative stories and two positive stories. 
The first negative story is that very little story about somebody who comes knocking on your door who needs help. They need warm clothing. They need food. But you say to that person, according to James' story, he say, you say to that person, oh my, well, um, I hope everything works out for you. Stay warm and eat well. And James says, have your words done anything? Of course not. They're empty. They're, they're dead, James says. The second negative story is a little bit more troubling for me because James cites the belief that is very dear to a lot of us, the belief that there's one God. And James says, this belief that is so precious to us that there's only one God, James says, you know who else believes this? The demons. And has it done them any good? No. It's James' way of emphasizing the definition that our faith is not just the beliefs that we hold. Our faith is the beliefs that we hold that determine how we live. The first half alone just doesn't cut it. To believe something has no impact if it doesn't determine how I live. It's dead. Then there's the two positive stories about Abraham and Rahab. In lacking time, we won't go into details, but both of them believed something about God and that belief caused them to live and act in certain ways. Now, here is why I tell you this and why it is so important for me and for you to understand this, that our faith is not just the beliefs that we hold, but it is the beliefs that we hold that determine how we live. This is why it is so important for us to understand this about our lives in this world right now. Because right now, our world is a mess, isn't it? Our world is a mess. It scares some of us. We're worried and we're depressed. And yet I know most of you well enough to know that we believe the right things. We do. I know we do. In fact, I saw a great post. I think it was on Facebook. I'm not positive. A great post this past week. I couldn't find it this morning. But it was one of those clever um, Venn diagram-y things where there was like 15 circles and all the circles intersected. They overlapped right in the middle. And in the middle was that word, me. And all of those circles had particular beliefs about what's going on. This is a very early version that was on Facebook of that Venn diagram uh, that started out when the only thing that was going wrong in our world was a pandemic, back when our world was simple. But our world's got a lot more complicated in the last little while, isn't it? There's a lot more going wrong than just a pandemic. And I was looking at that particular one on Facebook. There's probably 15 circles around it. And I was reading all the circles and I was thinking, you know, I agree with all of these circles. One of the circle was something like, I know why I say black lives matter. And I agree, I know why I say that. Another circle said, I support good cops. And I agree. Another circle said, our criminal justice system needs reform, and I agree. Another circle said, I think businesses should be open, and I agree. Another circle said, I think I should wear a mask to protect the vulnerable, and I agree. Lots and lots of circles around like that. And I think I actually clicked the like button. 
because it made me think that by clicking the like button, I was actually doing something. I wonder what James would say. I wonder what James would say. Some time ago, before all of this mess got started, at an amusement park out in California, which shall remain unnamed, because this is on YouTube, and I might get sued if I named it. Um, but a bus pulled into the parking lot that was full of young black boys and black girls. Now, there were a lot of buses pulling into the parking lot on that day. But among all the buses that pulled into the parking lot day, this is the bus that was surrounded by security guards. And humiliatingly, every single boy and girl in that bus was dragged off the bus and frisked as they looked for weapons and for drugs. Now, of course, they didn't find any. Because this was a school bus that was rented by an organization called YFC, Youth for Christ. And all the black kids and all the black girls on that bus, they were all members of Youth for Christ. All of them were followers of Jesus Christ, and they were going to a park for the day. They had done not a thing different than any other kid on any other bus. Now, the park took a lot of heat for what they did to that particular bus. The park sent a spokesman out, and the spokesman defended their actions by saying, we have every right to search suspicious youth. That was the quote. Now, it might have been the wrong thing to say, because when someone asked, well, what was suspicious about them? No one could point to anything. They weren't more rowdy than any other bus. They'd thrown nothing out of the windows. No graffiti on the bus. Nobody had called in a threat. If you and I are honest, we know what it was. Only it's really, really hard to say, isn't it? What was suspicious was that they were black. Have you ever asked a parent, what's it like to have to tell your children, look, these are the things that are going to happen to you in this world. Be prepared. Accept it. Keep your hands where everyone can see them. Do you believe that that should happen to a bus full of young people? James would say, so you believe, so what? There are some cops that I know and love. I know they signed up because they wanted to do something with their lives that would end up helping people. They wanted to have a life that mattered. Every single day they go to work. They kiss their spouses and their kids and they walk out the door leaving behind a family that is thinking, please come home. Yeah, the system's pretty broken. It is. 
It really is. At the same time, there are men and women who signed up and they are getting hammered every day. And yet still, they are choosing to do what they do because they know it matters. Do you believe those men and women matter? James would say, so you believe. So what? There's a true story that I have told several times to Horizon Church at really important moments in our history. I told you this story on the first Sunday that we met in this building, January 6, 2013. This story comes from an old man with a German accent who now lives in the United States, still alive as I understand it, but who spent his childhood in Germany during World War II. Without changing a single word, I want to read to you exactly what he wrote. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because we could not do anything, we thought, to stop it. A railroad track ran behind our small church. Each Sunday morning, we could hear the whistle in the distance and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would soon hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the train was coming. We knew the time. When we heard the whistle blow, we began to sing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly. And soon we heard them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear the train whistle in my sleep. God forgive me. God forgive all of us who call ourselves Christians and yet did nothing to intervene. How different our world might have been. How many young men would not have died on the beaches of Normandy? How many millions of Jews would still be alive? How different our world might have been if Christians in Germany might have stood up and said, my faith says no. We will no longer sing more loudly while death runs down the tracks behind us. My faith says no. How different our world might be 20 years from now if those who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, if we will say, we will no longer stand to sing and let the world go to hell outside our windows. My faith says no. Very soon, as you heard, we'll be starting conversations here at Horizon. It is time 
for us to listen to each other. I have black brothers and sisters whom I love. It's time for me to listen. And then it will be time for me to act. Some of us at Horizon are now reaching out to the police department in Allentown. I have brothers and sisters I love who walk out of their houses to serve every day. It is time for me to pray for them and then it will be time for me to act. And there will be more that we do. Because never in my old age do I want to look at the time that God is giving me to live in now and say, We used to sing more loudly so that we didn't hear the cries of the people out there. James would say, so you believe, so what? Let's pray. God, as a church, sometimes there's nothing for us to do than to repent. To recognize that as your followers for too long, we have stood to sing more loudly in here while the world goes to hell out there. God, please give us wisdom. Please speak to us so that we know what it is we're called to do. Please heal us. Please, please pour out your grace and your mercy and your affection and your love and your power on us so that we can be your church, your people in a world that needs the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you all for being here. It was great to see faces. Love you all and uh, look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.